All right. Well, good evening and welcome to Christ Church. Uh, as Tracy mentioned, this is our first Sunday in the um, period of time called Lent. And it looks like for, for Lent as a Saturday night service, we decided to give up our seating. But I think we'll get it back next week. But yeah, like Tracy said, we had an incredible opportunity with our missions team this morning and afternoon um, to just serve meals for hundreds of thousands of people. And uh, this seemed like a small price to pay to allow that to happen here at Christ Church. Thank you. For some reason, during the scripture, my throat just started getting scratchy. So before we go any farther, let's join together and pray. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we just invite you into this room. Lord, we sit before you in silence and, Lord, just can see you in our presence. Lord, you, we just pray that you would lift the distractions from us. Lord, that you would lift the frustration or stress or pain that we might carry in with us. And Lord, we pray that we might just be engaged with your spirit in a new way tonight. Lord, allow us just to understand what it means to accept denial. And Lord, let us leave this place living our lives in a new and refreshing way. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, in 1973... Burger King launched a very familiar advertising campaign. They had a commercial, and in that commercial, they sang a little jingle. And it went like this. Hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, special orders, don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us serve it your way. Now, Burger King was trying to rewrite how people understood fast food as an opportunity to go and receive a meal the exact way that you want it. If you don't want pickles, you don't have to have them. If you don't want lettuce, you don't have to have them. Because the assumption is, is that if we could pick and choose everything, that the burger would end up being a perfect fit for what we wanted that evening. And you see, this is built upon a culture that believes a similar thing. That if you and I were able to pick exactly what we wanted, when we wanted it, and how we wanted it, that our lives would suddenly be enhanced. That our lives would suddenly become incredibly refreshing. I want to take a minute as a congregation to just close our eyes. If you'd close your eyes with me. And I want you to imagine your world exactly as you might want it. I want us to imagine first our, our dream home. <clears throat> what would our house look like? How many bedrooms would it have? What would the finishes be like? What colors would we choose to paint the walls? What kind of amenities would be built into it? Maybe a pool in the backyard, a gym and a theater in the basement. Where is this house going to be located? If you could have your house your way, what would it look like? 
Next, let's just imagine the car that we might park in the driveway or the garage. What kind of comforts would that car feature? Leather heated seats, Bose stereos. If you had your dream car, what would it cost? And finally, let's take a moment to think about what we would do. What job would we seek after, and how much would that job pay us? What would our coworkers be like? How many of them would report to us? If you could have the world your way, what would it look like? You can open your eyes. Now, I assume that many of us chose to live in a 500-square-foot house in a bad neighborhood with beat-up countertops and chipped paint walls with a, uh, an old, broken-down Ford Taurus in the driveway that we drove to our low-paying job, right? I'm sure many of us decided that we wanted a downgrade, that we wished we worked at a job that paid us just a little bit less, And we wish we had fewer things filling our homes. No. If you're anything like me, you pictured yourself in a 5,000 square foot mansion with a pool and a water slide overlooking a gorgeous sand-covered beach. In your garage, you had a sports car, and in the driveway was a much more practical Land Rover. You worked at a job in which your coworkers respected you, in which you had power and authority, and you were paid well to do so. You see, we live in a culture that assumes that bigger is better, that assumes that a life without limits is a life worth living. We assume that acceptance is the key to life. And at the same time, that means we assume that denial is death. I mean, think about it with me for a moment. We live in a world in which our data plans are unlimited. In fact, a few weeks ago, I reached the maximum capacity for my data, and you would have thought the world had ended. I couldn't check up on my Seahawks. I couldn't look at my email. I just sat on my couch. What was I to do? We live in a world with large proportions and endless buffets. A world that rewards us with shopper value cards. The more we spend, the more we receive. A world with weekend sports cars and empty bedrooms. We live in a world that recognizes comfort as life. And in this same world... Denial brings us death. How many of us have forgotten our password for our email? What a frustrating experience that is. How many of us have applied for a promotion in our job and learned that we were denied? Suddenly, our plans for the future have been changed drastically. 
Some of us, while playing basketball, have put up a last-second shot to win the game, and it is swatted down, and we're denied our opportunity. Many of us have probably gone to a store and and purchased a new TV or a new piece of furniture only to find out at the cashier that our credit card has been denied. Or maybe we applied to a college that we knew would just bring us satisfaction and be the foundation for the rest of our lives, but for some reason our application was rejected. Our world recognizes denial as death and acceptance as life. And so as we come into this period of Lent, I'm a little perplexed. Because we recognize Lent as a 40-day period of time in which we're supposed to deny ourselves of some sort of comfort. We're supposed to experience some sort of death and see how that might change our relationship with Christ. Something's got to be wrong. Why would a God that loves us want to watch us suffer? I want to open up with you to Matthew chapter 4. Tracy just read this to us, but we're going to break it down um, just verse by verse here. And we're going to look at this time in Jesus' life in which he is about to begin his ministry. And before his ministry begins, he goes on uh, a sabbatical of sorts. Now, it's probably not the same type of sabbatical that Dan went on. I would assume that it's not filled with the same activities. But the point is is that before Jesus launched into his ministry, he wanted to be refreshed. He wanted to be focused. And he wanted to spend time with his Father. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, Jesus has separated himself from all sorts of comfort. And one of the most mind-boggling pieces is that he hasn't eaten for 40 days. And I know that if you're like me, you kind of assume, well, you know, Jesus is God after all. And so he probably doesn't feel hunger in the same way that I feel hunger. There's no way that he's actually experiencing what it might feel like to go 40 days without any food. Come on. But then I remember a story from Mark chapter 11. Jesus is in the, uh, in the temple with his disciples and they're leaving. And much like you and I, after church, they're hungry. I don't know about you, but my first activity on Sunday mornings is heading right off to Jason's Deli to get a sandwich. And Jesus is feeling the same way. He's leaving church. He's hungry. And he and his disciples are walking along the road, and they're looking for food. And and off in the distance, they see a fig tree. And they, they hurry along to go up to the fig tree and pick from its fruit. And it says that Jesus reaches up and finds that, to his surprise, there is no fruit on the tree. His response, he strikes the tree dead. He says, if I can't have food from this tree, nobody can have food from this tree. My wife and I have a term for this. It's called being hangry. So now here's Jesus after 40 days of not eating, and he is starving. 
He is starving. And the devil comes to him and the devil says, look, Jesus, I know who you are. You don't need to prove anything to me, but Jesus, come on, just have a bite to eat. You'll feel so much better if you just get something in your stomach. Jesus, you could easily turn these rocks into bread. Let's not be silly any longer. Let's, let's be comfortable. And Jesus responds to him by saying this. People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus has denied himself of comfort for a reason. Because he's seeking after a different kind of life. How many of you in here have been so, gotten so absorbed in a project, maybe it was woodworking or crafting or, or a project for work or uh, on your computer, and you totally forgot to eat a meal? I've done this before. I'll skip dinner, and then I'll come in and be like, what time is it? Now imagine being so absorbed in a project that you skipped 40 days worth of meals. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, I don't live on bread alone. I live on scripture. I live on the words of my father. And I am so engrossed, so caught up in what he has to say that my comfort is only secondary. I have denied food because I'm so caught up in the work of my father, so caught up in his scripture. Imagine what that must be like to be so caught in God's scripture that we forget our hungers, we forget our comfort, and we experience life in a new way. Jesus denies his comfort in order to experience the life of his father. This narrative continues, and it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off, for the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, Satan comes to Jesus and tempts him with Two very similar things, with glory and with power. And again, I'm left wondering, well, why would these even be temptations for Christ? He's God after all. Doesn't he have all the glory? Doesn't he have all the power? Doesn't he have dominion over the entire earth? How can Satan even hold this above his head? But then I remember Jesus in Luke 22 in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is bowed before his father and he is weeping bitterly because he is overcome by the pain and the suffering that he is going to endure. Jesus didn't come to our earth for glory and fame. 
He came to be persecuted and murdered on a cross. And Satan understands this, and Satan comes to him and says, Look, Jesus, it doesn't have to be this way. Come on, come over here, join me. You'll have all the power you could possibly imagine, all the glory you could possibly want. Jesus, if you just come over here, if you just give in to this temptation, if you just say yes, I'll free you from this suffering. But again, Jesus recognizes that acceptance leads to death and that this denial leads to a new kind of life. That if he seeks after glory here on earth, if he seeks after power here on earth, then he is left in a continual cycle of pleasing those around him and less and less able to glorify his Father in heaven. You see, as we come into Lent, we shift our understanding of denial. We are not being called to death. We are being called to a new kind of life, a life that is fulfilling, a life that is satisfying, a life that leads us to Christ. I want to tell us three stories of denial. Two come from Scripture, and one is one of my favorite childhood books. And I'll start with a childhood memory. It's, it's a story about a man named King Midas. Now, King Midas was a powerful ruler. And one day he was sitting in his throne room, and his servants brought to him a half-man, half-goat. And he was bound up, and the servants threw him before the king and said, We found this being trespassing in your vineyards. What should we do with him? And King Midas immediately recognizes that this is actually a servant of the gods. And so he tells his servants, Unhand this man. Take off his shackles. Free him from his bondage. And the creature looks up at Jesus, and, or not at Jesus, the creature looks up at King Midas And says to King Midas, thank you for your mercy. Because of it, the gods will grant you one wish. King Midas thinks for a moment and he says, I'm already the king. What what could I want? What could bring me glory, fame, power, and wealth? What's the greatest commodity found here on earth? And he thought to himself, I would be satisfied if everything I touched turned into pure gold. I could clothe myself in gold. My palace would be filled with splendor. I would be the talk of the world. And so the gods grant him this favor. And the next morning, Midas wakes up and he reaches over and he touches his end table. I assume he was trying to hit his alarm clock or something like that. And, And suddenly the table turns into solid gold. He springs out of bed and he runs into the garden with excitement and he reaches down and plucks up a rose and it doesn't smell like anything. It's just pure gold. Well, this is just a mild inconvenience and he bends over and smells the delightful scent of the roses. He then runs back inside to grab a bite to eat, and he takes a grape and plucks it off the vine and throws it up in the air, and (coughs) he chokes on the cold metal object. 
once again. Nothing gold can't fix. I'll just have my servants feed me. And so he goes and sits in his throne room and and thinks about his newfound glory. And his little daughter comes running in and sprints to the throne and jumps up into his lap for a hug. And to his horror, he embraces the cold, lifeless, golden form that was once his daughter. You see, he had been given everything that he wanted. He had a life free from limits, but this life did not bring him refreshment. This life brought him death. And so he begged the gods, gods, please take this from me. And in the same mercy that he had shown their servant, they released him from his bondage. So often we become slaves to our things, slaves to our desires for glory, slaves to the understandings and perceptions of the world around us. And we buy into the assumptions that that means that it must be true life. Now in Scripture, we see in Mark chapter 10 a very familiar story about a rich young ruler. This man has great wealth. We assume that he has great authority as well. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I have followed all of your decrees. I have read your scriptures. I know your word, but there's something missing. How many of us have been in the same place where we've read God's scriptures, we've followed after his decrees, but For some reason, our faith doesn't feel alive. For some reason, we don't feel the presence of God with us. I know this is a common refrain in my life. And so Jesus turns to him and says, You lack one thing. Sell all of your possessions and follow me. Now, I've always thought of this as some sort of test. That if he really did read all of... God's scriptures, if he really did follow all of his rules, then the next thing was to test his faith, to find out how true it was, to find out how much he believed in Christ. But what if it's not a test at all? What if Jesus is offering him an opportunity at life? What if Jesus is saying, you know this void that you feel? You know this death that you feel in your heart? You know how you feel incapable of being in my presence? Well, then get rid of all of your stuff, and you will be freed to live life anew. There's a similar passage in Luke chapter 10. Jesus' disciples have um, come before him, and they're being commissioned to head off and go as missionaries throughout the world as they know it. And they come to Jesus beforehand, and they say, Jesus... What's on the packing list? What should we bring with us? Will the hotel we be staying in have a hot tub? Should I pack my swimsuit? What should we bring? And Jesus turns to them and says, bring nothing. Don't take your wallet. Don't take an extra set of clothes. Don't bring your swimsuit. Don't worry about shelter. I've got it all figured out. And again, I've always thought of this passage as this great test. That if we truly believed in God, if we truly trusted in him and and held firm to his laws, we would just 
go off and live life with nothing and, and live trusting him and give up all of our comfort and happiness because, because truly we're called to a life of suffering. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, look, I'm sending you on an all-expenses-paid trip. Don't worry about it. I've already figured out where you're going to stay. I already have phenomenal meals ready for you. You just need to worry about living. You just need to worry about spreading this life to as many people as you possibly can. You see, these three stories tell us something. That denial is life. And that oftentimes comfort, fame, and glory is death. What if when God created Adam and Eve with nothing in the garden, he created them perfectly? He created them to live life to the fullest. What if... Their desire to have it their way led to death and not life. And what if, when we come into Lent, Jesus is offering us the same thing again? Live free from the burdens of this world. Live free from your possessions. Live free from the need to have glory and power. And I tell you, you will experience life. Now, this narrative with Jesus in the desert, I think, ends with a short but powerful verse. Jesus says, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he's responding to Satan. Then the devil went away and angels came and took care of Jesus. You see, when Jesus denied the devil... When Jesus denied comfort, when he denied glory, when he denied power, and when he accepted life, the devil no longer had a hold over him. And he dropped his head and he walked away. I think the same is true for us. The devil can offer us many comforts, great power, incredible glory. And if we allow those things to imprison us, he is one. But to deny those things is to accept life anew in Christ. So as we leave today, let's do two things together. We're a few days late, but let's start our Lenten journey here on Saturday night. And let the first thing be that we pray that God would allow us to see denial as life. Look, we're starting way behind in the game. I know that I am wrapped up in my possessions. I am wrapped up in the things that I have. And it is hard to possibly imagine giving those things up as bringing me life and not discomfort. So let's begin by taking each day and praying about this. God, Help us to change our understanding of denial. Help us to embrace it as a way to life. And then second, for the next 40 days, let us choose one thing that we can deny and fill that space with God.
fill that space with scripture and prayer. And see if maybe, like Christ, we forget about the denial. We forget about the discomfort and are overwhelmed by the life. And let's recognize that by journaling, how that denial is beginning to offer us freedom. If we do these two things, I'm convinced that my life will change, and I'm convinced that our lives will be filled with refreshment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would reshape our understanding of denial. Lord, we live in a culture in which denial is death. But Lord, your scriptures paint a different picture. Lord, let us see denial as you see denial. And let us embrace it as our only opportunity to experience true life. And pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks, Pete.